The CEO Roundtable brings together operations professionals at the top of their game to define and explore what it means to be highly effective in a scale-up organization. And what sits at the heart of it is highly curated peer-to-peer roundtables where CEOs talk about things that matter. I absolutely love my roundtable. We've been together for about two years, and without exaggeration, I have made friends for life. To find out more, go to coroundtable.com. That's coroundtable.com. Welcome to The Operations Room, a podcast for COOs. I am Brandon Mensinga, joined by my amazing co-host, Bethany Ayers. How are things going, Bethany? They're going really well, Brandon. Thanks for asking. This weekend, just gone by, I hosted my first women's workshop that I had threatened to do. In some ways, it was a lot better than I expected. In other ways, it was a bit of a letdown. (laughs) Like, We'd open with introductions and then we would cover the topic of how to lead the way that you want and then do an ask me anything and then have lunch and then do a movement practice and the roundup at the end of the day. But I was thinking about it and I was like, it's really important that we get to know each other and build a lot of trust so that the rest of the conversation can run smoothly. So I thought, we'll just take however long we need to take for introductions. Any guess for how long introductions took us? I suspect this went on for quite some time. Yeah. So there were 10 of us in the room and we did introductions from half nine till 10 past 12. Wow. One of the topics we covered was crying at work. My crying story took place in front of a board. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's rough. (laughs) Which helped make everybody else's crying stories. They felt a little bit better after that because nobody, like they've cried in front of their CEOs. They've cried in front of colleagues. They've cried in the bathroom and pretended they had allergies, but nobody else like quite manage the entire board. Desperately trying to hold back. Like I'll just say, I did not actually cry because I don't know at what point does it count as crying? I think it's like when the tears (laughs) leave your eyes. (laughs) What is the criteria by which you can claim a a cry? Just welling up, but not actually leaving your eyes. I'm guessing, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's when a tear leaves your eye, you can call that crying. Yeah. So I didn't cry in front of the board. I just got really, really close managed to hold it back as much as I possibly could, even as the CEO who was learning how to run teams and be a better communicator and talk about difficult subjects. I finished the critique that the chair had given me. And then the CEO turned and was like, Beth, I can see you're really upset right now. We can all see you're really upset. Is there anything you'd like to talk about? (laughs) Oh, Jesus. Uh, No, you're like, no, no, there is not. Not right now. (laughs) I haven't technically cried. So no, let's just stop it here. Yeah, exactly. Literally as prompting the cry to occur at that stage. Yeah. So I think I just shook my head and was like, no. And that was it. Wow, that is rough. But I can legitimately say I've never cried in the workplace. I've cried... Actually, this is rather embarrassing now that I say this, but I I cried in 1999 watching Titanic. I was quite sad at the end when Jack had to float away in the ocean at that point. Spoiler alert, yeah. (laughs) So so yeah, I haven't cried in 23 years. No, I don't know. I think there's like a go-to that people have. My go-to is more getting angry. Not that I'm angry at work, but it has occurred in the past. So I... I don't know if it's my own theory. It's probably not. It's probably somebody's theory that I should be crediting, and I don't know who, is that the only safe bad emotion 
there aren't such things as good emotions and bad emotions, but we all label them. The only safe bad emotion for men is anger. And it's the only one you're allowed to show. And women conversely are allowed to have a range of emotions, including crying, but we're not allowed to be angry, which is really interesting. So it doesn't surprise me that anger is what comes out when you're hurt and upset. And also conversely, why women cry or get passive aggressive or say, no, 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 it's fine. And stuff it all down because you're not allowed to show anger. It took me years to embrace anger as an emotion I could share. There is something legitimate here to talk about from a leadership standpoint in organizations, because we all get upset at, at some point in our careers and how you, you address your, your being upset and how you express it and how you get past it and how you recover from it. There's something there to perhaps speak about. Absolutely. And then I think one of the other things, if we bring it back to the conversation today on boards, is it's one of the more vulnerable times in your career. And it happens a lot because you have these people who have your job in their hands and you need to impress. And I don't know for you, but as an exec, I never wasn't nervous going into a board meeting and having to work through how to show up well and not have my nerves actually get the better of me. Has that ever happened to you? It used to in the early days. I think much less so now. I feel like I'm not that I'm past it. I mean, you never get past your nerves, I think, but I think I'm in a place now where I can very much manage myself in a way that's like appropriate to the situation, I guess. The short answer is yes. Back historically, especially when you're younger, you're 30 years old, you're sitting in a room with folks that are 50, 55, very experienced. You feel like you don't know half what they know. So you feel very intimidated and it makes you nervous because of that. And now that I am 50 years old, I think maybe this is the difference, which is now that I am 50 years old, when you recognize that was never really the case, they were never twice as knowledgeable. I agree with you. I'm not nervous in that way anymore, but I still maybe from the crying incident, know that the bar is very high at a board meeting. It's not a meeting you can just rock up to. You need to know what your key topics are. You need to know your numbers. You need to kind of pre-game what you think you might be asked so that you present very well every time. Yeah, no, I agree. In that respect, I do exactly the same thing. I take it very seriously, probably more so than I should. (laughs) I think being a CEO sometimes, I think you take these types of events deadly serious. You're like, all right, it's a board meeting. You want to make sure that the analysis has been done. You want to make sure that the board truly understands the state of the business and you know any questions they have, you're in a position to robustly answer. And if you're not, you know where the information lies. This idea that somehow you can simply repurpose reporting that you've done internally and use it for the board is a misnomer in my view because of this very nature, which is it is serious. You need to do your analysis. It requires more thoughtfulness in terms of how you get value out of that board meeting. I feel responsible for that. And maybe I shouldn't, but that's how I feel. I think in order to keep your your job, you should. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, to keep your job. Yeah, take it seriously. Because even if they're peers, you show up and don't present your best version of yourself on multiple occasions, you're not going to have your job. You're exactly right. It's like nobody escapes the (laughs) performance. (laughs) That's how you're being judged. You see these people once a month, once a quarter, and in a way, that's who you're ultimately reporting into, and they make judgments on you in terms of your role, your compensation, for them to refer you into future opportunities. Absolutely. And it's your opportunity to show that you actually are an exec, and you are a proper (laughs) grown-up, and you're taking it seriously. It's like as close to the movies as work gets. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there is a bit of that, isn't it? You feel like you're on the stage, which is like, I'm the CEO. I understand the holistic nature of the business in a way that nobody else does. And I'm going to represent that to the board and make sure they understand that's my role. And that is the topic for today, which is how does a COO work effectively with the board? We have an amazing guest, Keith Wallington, the former CEO of Mimecast. And maybe just to continue our, our chat that we were just having, Bethany, there was really just a couple of quick thoughts that I wanted to, to lay on you. So one was this, which is, I feel like there's three different types of board outcomes. One is the board outcome where you feel like you've walked away from that session where there is net new learnings, net new thoughts, new curiosities that you've developed based on the conversation that you've had. And that's the way that it should be. And that's fabulous. The second one that I tend to see is you feel like you've just done a ton of reporting. There's the state of the business but you walk away from it with really nothing beyond that. And the outcome of that, in my view, is kind of a waste of time. And then the third possibility is where you walk away from that session and you feel demoralized, you feel chastised. The question for you, Bethany, is when you think about those three different outcomes, do you agree? And with those outcomes, do you think there's ways of changing those outcomes if you're in a position where you're getting outcome two and three? I do agree. I think that there's on the first, there's almost like a not quite as Nirvana one, which is maybe you don't come out with net new thinking, but you get important decisions made or you get the board approval for the areas that you have recommended. And so it can be effective, but not brand new. With the other two, I think we should ask Keith as a chair what he thinks, because a lot of this comes down to how the board operates and how the chair runs the board and your relationship. And it's almost like going a bit upstream in terms of, at least you know, for a lot of our businesses, most of the board is made up of investors. And so it comes down to choosing wisely on investors in the first place and finding out and having those conversations around what do they think the role of a board is. They're going to be totally in sales mode. So it's definitely worth referencing them with other companies that they're on the board of. You want to find investors who sit on the board who really do view it as a team, who understand and have some empathy for operators. We are very lucky at Peak that we have a lot of former operators, and it just means that you have a bit of empathy. And so therefore, nobody wants people to leave the meeting feeling humiliated. I guess maybe there's a little bit of that old school is it the sticker? Is it the carrot? So we're going to go for the stick. We're going to get them all in shape, but it, it doesn't really work that way. Everybody reacts better to carrots. So I think it's around making sure you build a good board in the first place and also be able to have those conversations of like either conversations or the feedback that this has been an unproductive meeting or and this is an unproductive relationship. We all ultimately want the same goals. So how can we work better together? super hard to do as a COO. Like it's not necessarily always our place to do it. It could certainly be our place to help facilitate that conversation. No, that makes sense. And I, I think in the, the case of the being chastised or demoralized, it's almost like a relationship. If you feel like that time and time again in these sessions, and that's the, the mode of operation of a particular board, then I think it's incumbent upon the CEO and the CEO to really plot out changes to be made in that board over time. And, you know, I recognize to your point, sometimes people are placed from the investor standpoint onto that board and you cannot move them. However, there is optionality around it because just purely as an example, you can go back to that same investor 
and a more senior person within that firm that you might have a relationship with and really have a conversation about that particular board member not being what you need for the organization for a variety of reasons and trying to engineer really a switch over at that point with somebody else as an example. So there are ways to do this, I think, of the CEO and the CEO really figuring out how to get a board that works for them in this case. And bring in some ex-operators as NEDs. Actually, that's a fabulous point because that's where the balance happens, doesn't it? You have investors that are investor investors. And if you balance that board with some legit operators, then there's more of a healthy push and pull. So with that, why don't we move on to our conversation with Keith? I'd love to welcome our guest today, Keith Wallington. Keith and I have known each other for many years when he was COO at Mimecast, and I was doing a massive strategy project there. When Keith sent his bio through, he mentioned that he joined Mimecast when they were at 6 million ARR and left when it was over 110. Can you remember what it was in 2010 at all? I think it was probably around 20. I don't really remember. Yeah, I find it really funny that I'm not sure I ever knew somehow did a strategy project without knowing that. You could tell those were early days of SaaS. So after Keith left Mimecast, he moved over to the other side and started chairing SaaS startups and scale-ups. And we have worked together in Keith's new career as well. And so I thought it would be really interesting, or I should say we thought it would be really interesting to bring Keith on today to talk about that experience of being both a hypergrowth COO and then moving to the other side to understanding what it's like from the board position and particularly the chair position. So welcome, Keith. Thank you very much. It's great to be here so early on in the series. So you know me, there are no softballs. We're going to go straight in for a big question, which is what... Do you know now that you wish you had known as a COO that you can share with our listeners? There's probably two things. The one I'd like to lead with is focus on less. I think it's so easy to end up with a bloated list of objectives that you then try and get an organization to rally around. I think focus on less. And and by the way, this is a lesson I'm still learning. Even in a chair role, even when I'm working on board agendas, focus on less. You know, there's that great saying more wood behind less arrows, sort of three, probably maximum, absolutely so much value in having a team focused on few very important things. The second is, if I may squeeze in a second, learn from others more. When I was at Mimecast in various C-level roles, including COO, it was in the very early days of SaaS. The metrics didn't exist, right? They were kind of forming while we were building the business. And I think we assumed that nobody else out there was going through the pains and the challenges we were. So we just assumed we needed to invent all the wheels ourselves. And only when I popped out the other side, late 2014, early 2015, around our IPO, which is before our IPO, and started working a lot with other startups and talking to a lot of other execs in businesses more mature and less mature than Mimecast was, I realized we were all trying to solve the same problems. And I just wasn't talking to everybody else. So profound value these days in being able to talk to other executives, other people that are going through or have been through or about to go through really the same stuff. That makes a lot of sense. That's really good advice, I think, for aspiring CEOs that are out there. What I wanted to do is maybe just place that with the corresponding baseline question on my side, which is, what do you want from a CEO in terms of interaction with you? What do you expect from a CEO in those board meetings? 
I oftentimes have had conflicting messages, I would say, from the board in terms of what the expectations are of me. It's a very interesting question. And I would imagine there are no consistent answers to it. My approach to boards is that boards should be high-performing teams, as should executive teams, frankly, as should any team. And high-performing teams are obviously built on, as Lencioni described in his books, built on trust through vulnerability such that the team can operate in a state of constructive conflict. And so if you're in that room, you need to be fully in that room, be it in a board meeting or, or the team you're in. So my expectation is that COOs share their views as much as anybody else does in the room because we spend a huge amount of time trying to get the right people on the team. Why would we then not want to get full access to their brain? I understand others have different views. <laughs> Certainly my style of chairing board meetings is one of ensuring that I'm grokking the entire room, that I'm accessing the entire room's abilities, both in the meetings and outside. And so off the back of that, I also strongly encourage large amounts of exec team interaction with board members in, in various ways. That immediately gives me two questions. The one I'm going to ask first is, and this is probably casting yourself back to when you were a COO rather than a board member, is how much do you toe the line and which loyalty do you have first? If you are disagreeing with your CEO, but you're both going to be going to the board, how do you handle that? It kind of ties into other topics we might touch on today. So I'll try not to go too deeply yet, but the CEO-COO partnership is really a yin-yang thing. And we'll get on to kind of what the COO's job is and stuff maybe in a moment. But as a result, they need to operate in a very healthy relationship. And hence, they need to be able to be the exemplars of constructive conflict, both in front of their board, but also in front of their organization. I mean, it's amazingly impactful to see two people in very powerful positions disagree with each other constructively in front of an audience because that, that sets the culture. That tells people how they are expected to operate in an organization. And that untaps a huge amount of thinking that otherwise wouldn't be tabled out of fear of disagreeing with the party line. But I appreciate that this might be more rare than we would like. And in various fora, including in board meetings, and I think that's down to the people in the room. If the board operates as a high-performing team, sorry, I'm harking back to the phrase, but if a board operates in a space of constructive conflict, then it wouldn't be uncomfortable or unsurprising if two people on the same team disagree with each other. I mean, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And it could be a minor thing. It could be a, you know, does that pot plant go there or there in the new office? But it could also be, do we go to that new geo next or that new geo next? And that should all be on the table for healthy debate. I think it's also important that the CEO and the COO spend a lot of time together working on these key topics as a team of two, but also more broadly, such that it's unlikely some pivotal item is going to drop in a board meeting such that the two of them all of a sudden are sharing views that they haven't previously discussed. This is true, which leads me on to another question, which is if you see a CEO and COO getting along too well or always agreeing in board meetings and the maybe guest execs joining, is that a red flag for the team? Or do you immediately assume that they're all very well aligned? It could be either. But I would imagine, small sidebar here, great CEOs 
in my view, are product visionary CEOs. They are founder CEOs that are the ones with the 10,000 hours. They are the ones with the subject matter expertise. They are the ones with the problem solution fit concept that led to the start, the business being founded. They tend not to be great operators. They tend to be idea machines that want to reinvent the business every Monday morning. The COO, therefore, in that situation, in that dynamic, should be the, you know, the yang to the yin, right? Should be the person that brings methodical operating models that allow the organization to be focused and to execute consistently and methodically with minimal disruption and change. And that relationship between the two is obviously critical and you need to hire so that they fit into each other. And I think that lays the basis for that, for the answer to that question and and a lot of others. They should be in a place where they can disagree and sometimes agree a lot without anybody fearing that one of them is subservient to the other or, or afraid of sharing a view or, or maybe doesn't have a view. And I've spent a lot of time helping execs hire COOs. I and mean, you really look for these people that are high EQ, very smart, have very adaptive APIs, basically, that allow them to interact and integrate with many different CEO types. And you want to make damn sure that they know the, the personality of the CEO they're about to sign up to partnering with. So that makes tremendous sense. And I think this actually leads itself into the next question, which is the board's role and the chairman's role in the interview process for a COO. So the company is going to hire a CEO. They're setting up their interview process. What's the role of the board in that? And what, what would you expect to see as part of the process for the board itself? I like to refer to myself as a chairperson. We, we live in a world where there are many different interpretations these days, but I, I try and stay on the middle ground and just call myself a chairperson. Boards should be constructed not merely out of a group of investors that are there to monitor their investment. Obviously, they will want to do that if, if it's a VC-backed business or it has you know, external investors. Investors will want to be on a board so they can access information that allows them to understand how their investment is performing. But they should also be selected to be people that can be highly contributory and bring value. And in that context, and in the context of them working as a team, they should be supporting the CEO in making key hiring decisions, including the COO. And so they really should be there to bring their experience broadly and their knowledge of this business and this CEO and help this CEO craft the right job description and help filter for the right candidate. So they really should be used as part of a hiring team and not just at the final stage where there's kind of a board decision to a point, but they really should be used along the process, both in scanning candidates up front, you know, on paper, but also helping with the interview process. And I'm not talking about a court-martial-like group of eight board members interviewing COO candidates, but used sparingly to really help with that decision. And that should be entirely doable where there is a high-trust relationship between CEO and board members, be they investors or just non-execs. Yeah, because actually what you're saying is fascinating. I've never actually seen that before, to be honest, because what I have seen pretty repeatedly is that the board comes in at the very end and it's more of a blessing snap in some respects as opposed to anything else. And they're not really part of the actual process. But what you're describing is literally from CV scanning all the way through the actual process itself in some form where the board very much is contributing to the actual selection of that candidate. Yes. And I've described one of the benefits of that, which is assuming you've surrounded the CEO surrounded themselves with the board that are actually helpful people. And there are a lot of them out there these days. You know, I, I raised my first VC money in 98. And those VCs said that they were more than just the check and they were really helpful and blah, blah, blah. And they weren't really. But actually, nowadays, they really are because there's decades of learning by these people. So they really are very helpful people. So get their help, you know, surround, build a board that is helpful and then operate it such that it continues to be helpful. So that's one of the big benefits. The other benefit is 
if you have agreement up front, consensus up front on what you are looking for, and consensus on the likely shortlist of candidates that are going to go through the process, and you're working with some of those board members to navigate the process and evolve the process as you're meeting candidates, you're far more likely to end up employing somebody that the board buys into, and the board will feel like you are letting them in and being a part of your team. So you massively de-risk the hire rather than the COO candidate at final stage jumping out of the cake, at which point one of the board members says, are you out of your minds? I know that individual, that's a ragingly toxic nut job. And now the CEO looks like a schmuck in front of their board. It just doesn't make sense. You know, let's just work like a team as, as you would in any other team situation. So we're talking a lot about the team and a lot about the board being a team. This is assuming that the COO is a board member, and that's not always the case, or they join the board later on. How do you interact with the board when you're there regularly, but are not part of the team? What hints can you give to those types of COOs? So I was not a member of the board at Mimecast, and I was also a COO for only a portion of my six years. And the Mimecast board operated probably like a lot of boards back, back then did, which is your founders were directors, plus the CFO was either a director or company secretary. Either way, the CFO was you know, attending board meetings, but very little executive exposure to board happened. And certainly that was the case with me. I attended board meetings, but not regularly. And I generally attended board meetings to make contributions specific to the vertical parts of the organization that I was running and very little about the horizontal work I was doing to actually help the organization operate holistically. It is pretty seldom that COOs are members of the board these days, unless, of course, they're co-founders, in which case they're there because they're a co-founder and not so much because they're a COO. My approach to chairperson is, I suppose I'm trying to be the chair that I've never had, and I'm probably also a chair that is very empathetic to executives because I'm an ex-operator, as a lot of chairs are, but more on that later, because I think there are reasons why ex-COOs make very good chairs. It's a sort of a developing theory that I have that I've been sharing with people. I'm a big fan of key members of the executive team attending all board meetings, even though they're not directors. So for starters, right up front in a board meeting, after you've gotten through previous actions and board pack Q&A, which are my two staple first agenda items, what does everybody board want to know? They want to know how we're trading. They want to know about what happened in this quarter, what happened in the last quarter, what's going to happen in this quarter, what's the forecast for next quarter. So you've got to have your go-to-market leadership in the room because the board wants to hear from go-to-market leadership about whether we're going to make the number. And once we've all gotten over the anxiety about how we're doing commercially, we can then talk about other topics. So you want go-to-market leadership in most board meetings. I, I think if there is a COO in the organization, and they're not, I mean, in my portfolio, it's probably less than 50% have a COO. I'm a fan of the role, but they don't always exist. The COO should always be in the board meetings, and, and the exec team, particularly the COO, should be in the entire board meeting except topics that specifically are you know, board-only for whatever reasons. And I think that they should be treated as a member of the team regardless of whether they are a sort of a standing member of the board or not. And I think, as I said earlier, the more we habituate board members and, and executive team members to operating like an extended team of peers, the better. And actually, I see investors supporting that more and more and non-executive directors supporting that more and more because everybody realizes, you know, we're all on this journey together. There's no sort of sense of hierarchy. And frankly, board members should want maximum exposure to executives because those are the people running the organization. Hopefully, it's not the CEO doing everything because that means we can't scale. So I think COO should be in the room and they should be treated like an equal. So having been an exec attending board meetings, not just at peak, but in my career, it's absolutely nerve wracking 
And no matter what you think of like the board and you get there and my heart pounds before every meeting until I became a board member. And then I was like, I was like, okay, I can be in the room now. And you try and tell yourself it's okay. They're on your side. But also if you mess up, it's huge. And I do think boards have very high expectations of execs. So how do you prepare appropriately and show up to impress the board the most without killing yourself for the four weeks before the board meeting? You know your business better than those board members. Let's assume you do. (laughs) If you don't, well, then, you know, there's another discussion to be had. If you're a COO that is a T-shaped COO, in other words, you've, you know, you've got ownership of a number of functions, whatever they are, but you're also horizontally in some form operating the operating model that the entire organization is operating to, particularly the executive team or, or large parts of it, you should have a pretty good handle on this business. And I get that there is a kind of a stage fright that, that a lot of us get, and, and I certainly used to get it kind of regardless of the preparation. But I think if you if you appreciate that and just give yourself a break in, in the context of sharing the narrative with yourself that you do know this business, you understand this business, you probably feel this business on a regular basis. And so it's unlikely that you're going to have a conversation that you don't have a view on. So just be comfortable about the fact that you're going to be in a board meeting. Hopefully there's a chair in the room that wants people to feel comfortable because when you're comfortable, you're most likely to share. And another point is it's okay not to have an opinion. This is something that I learned over the last couple of decades because when I was younger, you know, I'm still pretty young, but when I was younger, I grew up thinking that you have to have an opinion about everything. And I think when you get into a position of, into a situation of anxiety, like a board meeting where these people are going to ask you a whole lot of stuff and you've got to have all the answers, the assumption therefore is that you must have all the answers. But maybe you don't. Maybe there are a lot of questions that are asked where the right answer is, that's really interesting. Tell me more about what you're thinking there. Okay. Well, you know, we have, we've looked at this and we've looked at that, but frankly, we haven't really gone deep on that question. I think that's something we should do or, let me give that some thought and come back to the board in a couple of days or a couple of weeks. I think it's okay to do that. You know, assuming the COO is a smart person with a reasonable amount of experience and the board has already somewhat bought into their capability, I think it's completely okay to appreciate and admire a person when they say, I don't know, but I think that's a really interesting topic. I'm going to give it thought and come back. And then when you come back, come back well. So this isn't necessarily specifically for COOs, but I have seen lots of visiting execs and some cover themselves in glory and some don't. And it's understanding that the board is a higher bar than other meetings. And also, obviously this is different for every organization, but being able to go and get feedback from your CEO, get feedback from your peers, and also have a relationship with your chair where you can get feedback from them as well. Do you feel like COOs and actually all execs should have a close relationship with the chair? I do. I think it's quite specific to the culture of the organization, which is really an extension of the CEO's personality or the founder's personality, which is typically the CEO. And CEOs tend to cascade their personalities through culture and ultimately through who they choose as their executive team in many respects. And so In some of the organizations I work in, I have regular communications with pretty much every executive. In other organizations, I don't. And sometimes it's quite selective to who I'm spending time with based on, you know, what the business is up to and the areas where I really want to 
be uh, de- more deeply engaged so I can help both help the CEO in that area, but also help the specific individual. So it's, it's quite variable based on the organization, but I do think by and large, it's very healthy for the chair to have reasonable interaction with all of the executives in a business. And it should be one of a coach supporter dynamic rather than, you know, the boss of the boss's boss, uh, which is, by the way, not the chairperson role that I fill at all. I am not the boss at all. So I think, yeah, I think you should be there to be helpful. And assuming the chair is an ex-operator or possibly a current operator, you should actually be in a place to be helpful. And that normally reduces the um, potential fear of the executive engaging with you as the chair. In fact, I had this conversation with the CMO yesterday. We were thinking about making time to catch up regularly, specifically on the marketing role in this specific organization, because it's taking a course that's not been taken before. And I said, I totally understand if you're kind of nervous about a chair being the person that you kind of talk to about your patch in a, in a coaching context. And this person said, no, not at all. You know, bring it on. You're an experienced person that could be helpful. And that's a delight, right? We all want to work with those people, but sometimes you don't. Sometimes you work with people that have maybe got some damage from a previous work environment where it wasn't so constructive. Yeah. And actually, maybe that's a good place to ask this question, which is, what's your advice to a CEO where the style of the board and the style of the chair is really kind of old school in a sense where they're much more interested in the reporting side of it in terms of the status of the business than what the leaders to come in to report on that status. It feels like you're reporting into the headmaster a little bit and there's some element of feeling that you're being chastised or there's more of the top-down autocratic style that they're performing in that sense. What's your advice for that kind of CEO in this in that way? Because obviously they don't control the board. They don't control who the, the people are there. The actual format of the board meeting itself, they don't own that either. But yet they're in this situation where they want to get the best for the company. What's your advice for that CEO? So I think first, do a lot of doodle before you take the job. Just as I do as a chair. I spend a lot of time, not, not just looking at the business, the business plan, the CEO, the executive team. I spend time thinking about those investors as well and, and who else is on the board. Because if it's a team that you don't think is the right team for you and is likely to operate in the right way, then you know don't take the job. I mean, it's possible to change the team. And I have been in situations where I have swapped out members of the board, including investor directors, frankly, because their contribution wasn't appropriate to what we wanted on that board. But that's pretty difficult to do, particularly as the COO, although assuming you develop a tight bond with the CEO, together you're going to build a business and together you should craft the right board. But so I would say like right up front, Pick your business and take a long, hard look at the board just as much as the rest of the executive team and the business's potential to succeed. If, however, you find yourself in a situation where maybe you didn't do the doodle well or you couldn't get a full read and subsequently, you know, you're a couple of quarters in and you realize this board isn't so useful, then I think there is an opportunity to change it. I think people are often quite coachable and I think there is an opportunity to have one on, well, first of all, have a conversation with the CEO about how, you know, get a consensus with the CEO about how you feel the board might be even more useful, and then agree a plan with the CEO to have conversations with a number of board members, either the CEO or the COO, and take people on a journey around how boards have evolved and how the CEO and the COO would like to adjust how this board operates uh, without being too overly complimentary to members of the board. But an approach that could be taken is, we didn't select you board members purely because you wrote checks into our business and you believe in our business, assuming that most of the board members are investors here, which is often the case. But maybe it's also because we selected you because of your wealth of experience, because of your 
experience as investors and what else you see. And we'd like to shift the way the board operates to ensure we get maximum value from all that experience you have. And then use that as a basis to table a somewhat more progressive operating model for the board, which we can talk through more if you want. But also that should include regular feedback, as Beth just touched on actually, but regular feedback on board meetings. And what I do in a number of boards and Beth and I do in the peak board is we do three types of feedback on that board. We do a quarterly survey after a strategic board meeting about how that board meeting went. And that's including agenda, the way the chairperson ran the meeting, the quality of the materials, but it's also about how board members contributed in the meeting. And everybody's completing that survey. The responses are scored and open form commenting, and everybody can see the feedback. And then at the end of the year, we do that again across the whole year as a board. And by the way, we also do it on the chairperson, where there's a survey about the chairperson's performance over the previous period. So I hope that was some, there were some helpful thoughts there on how to you know, get a board in a place where it can be more constructive. But I appreciate perfection doesn't necessarily exist. It doesn't exist. And I also think, because I get asked this question a lot around how to prepare for board meetings and what the expectations are. And I do think this is part of the board's job is to raise the bar and to show you what excellent looks like and to lead you towards excellent. So you can't just rock up to a board meeting. You need to properly prepare. You need to put your executive hat on and you need to present in a certain way. It's not just like another exec meeting or your own team's meeting. And that's okay. Agreed. And I should just add to the previous question as well. Another thing that I think is very important is spend time with board members outside of board meetings, one-on-one, and also as a group. Take time to create social opportunities with the whole board, maybe before or after board meetings, dinners, etc. But also use the opportunity to learn from them and get value from them in their portfolio by asking them to help with a topic. And then use that as an opportunity to spend time with them, get to know them, let them get to know you. And that also will Hopefully, it'll put you in a place where you can nudge their behavior in board meetings more, but also it should reduce the anxiety that you might experience before you step into that board meeting, because these are just fallible human beings like the rest of us. And I mean, just like the rest of us. (laughs) I wish that were the case. Like I could happily go to dinner with everyone, have a great time. Second, I walk in the door. (laughs) I'm just like... Yeah, because at the end of the day, you always know those those folks are writing the checks and they also kind of control your destiny and if there's a future opportunity at that company in terms of a board seat or what have you, I guess, in these ways. The other thing that occurred to me as you were talking, Bethany, I, something just popped into my head a little bit, which is I recall Sami Minashi from MMC Ventures. He had a very good piece of feedback that he gave us at one point, which is, do not do anything extra special in terms of the reporting. Anything you report back to the business that's the same material that you report back to the board. Don't put any additional effort into reworking things or adding things. Make it as simple as possible for yourself because that's not where the value is for the board. Ultimately, the value is in the conversation and the engagement around key topics, essentially. And it always stuck with me as, yes, he is absolutely correct. But then in the back of my head, and to what Bethany was just mentioning around pressure around the board meeting itself, and that is you know, a bit of an elevated status and these sorts of things, I always felt the, the need almost and the anxiety, I guess, to go back into those numbers, to redig, to re-excavate what those numbers actually mean in some ways, do more analysis, add a bit of piece of information here, add something there. So what I end up doing ultimately is a fair amount more in preparation for that board meeting than that concept that Simon Maneshi so eloquently stated to me at the time. And I guess I'm just curious as I'm saying that, what do you think? Am I mad? Should I have just been, look, your anxiety, put it to the side, just take the numbers, repackage them? <laughs> 
I think you're not mad. I think that's the value out of being an exec. And that's what I mean by extra effort. So it's the same numbers, but what you're doing is interpreting it and you're interpreting it for the board. As some people know, I had like the most horrific board meeting of my career when I was at New Voice Media with our chair at the time, a very good, but very scary for me, Frenchman. I was really used to being the star and I was always fine at every board meeting. I went in with the competitor analysis and he just was like, what is this? This is just data. I don't care about data. We pay you to think. I nearly cried in the board. I held it back so much. It then released something in me and I cried for four days, but it was a massive bar raiser for me. I've had two people in my career who have raised the bar for me massively. Guy was one and Sherry Freeman was the other. Just like, you're capable of more. You can think more. Think. It was a humiliating, but very good experience. And I'm happy I went through it. And that's exactly what you're talking about, Brandon, is it's not the data. It's the thinking that you're expected to do as an exec. I agree with all of that. Simon and I actually are on a board together. We're on the Ably Real-Time board together, and he's a great contributor. And I agree with him. I think, and I've said this for years, 99% of board pack material should be material that is being used in the organization anyway, either in executive kind of cadences or sometimes just the stuff that's being shared with the entire organization. Because let's face it, the entire organization should be hearing a large amount of the story that is shared in board meetings about how a business is performing, how it's thinking about its future, how it's dealing with stuff. So I really do fundamentally believe with what Simon is saying. But obviously, and there's some stuff that just should be built specifically for the board. You know, there are certain topics around compensation, et cetera, that, that are potentially kind of quite specific or share option allocations, et cetera. But I tend to get involved for reasons we can discuss some other time, but I tend to get involved between Series A and Series C. In VC parlance, obviously, Series A and Series C. What, what I mean is I tend to get involved after the business has been through the first couple of winters because I, I can't chair a 1,000 businesses and the attrition rate, unfortunately, of pre-Series A businesses is quite high. I limit myself to sort of six. And so I tend to get involved after a couple, the first couple of winters, which typically means you know sort of Series A stage. But at that stage, let's face it, there ain't no consistent build happening in that organization. They probably are just have a formative board and they, they have some work to do on how to really get their reporting working. And so when I say to them, you shouldn't be building anything for your board that you're not building for your team anyway, you kind of then very quickly realize that what they aren't telling you is, well, they sometimes will, is, well, we're not really building anything <laughs> for, our, for our executive team. We don't have an executive team. There's just these two co-founders. So actually what happens is, the board pack becomes a really healthy forcing function on the executive team to actually start building a repeatable pack that they can use that that then should be something that is used across the organization and not just for board meetings. And that's the way I tend to table it with teams that look at me and so, so you can just see the look in the eyes. Like, what do you, Your assumption is we already have reporting materials. <laughs> and of course, there might be stuff in the investor deck, but that's not necessarily the truth. So we don't necessarily look to that stuff when we're trying to understand how our business is performing. You know what I mean? And also just an understanding of what all the metrics are. Harkening back to the start of our conversation where you were not reinventing, but you were inventing the wheel and finding out that everybody else was inventing the wheel at the same time as well. Like there are some standard metrics that you can have a chat about and add to the board pretty quickly. Keith, we are unfortunately rapidly running out of time. Is there a way for people to get in contact with you, to learn more from you? Do you want people to get in contact with you? I live in the central highlands in Scotland, high in the mountains, because I 
don't like people. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I spend quite a lot of time with other founders, CEOs, executives, and other organizations outside of my portfolio. I do try and help more broadly. Those people normally find me through you know, my network of VCs and stuff. But yes, I'd be happy to. I think LinkedIn's the best approach. I'd rather go that route than sort of handing out, you know, direct personal contact details. So you'll find me on LinkedIn. And if I have the capacity, I'd be delighted to help. Awesome. Thank you. And final question for our listeners is, if you can only take one thing away from today's masterclass with Keith, what is the one thing everybody should remember? Don't assume that the other people around the table are somehow smarter, more experienced, better. They might be all of those things, but we are all fundamentally the same, members of the same species. And, and that's something that I've learned through my life, starting out when I was consulting to Microsoft in the 90s. In the first couple of days, I assumed that I was going to be met with a wall of geniuses. But I wasn't, actually. You know, it's not to say that I'm particularly smart either, but what I met was a bunch of Normal human beings, some of them very capable and some of them very incapable, trying to launch a thing called Windows 98. And so give yourself a break. Yeah, of course, make a real effort. Use your entire brain, but don't let any anxiety around your sense of who you are relative to others get in your way. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to talk to you guys. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us, Keith, on The Operations Room. And if you like what you hear on The Operations Room, please subscribe or leave us a comment, and we will see you next week. 